Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. In the first episode of this three-part series, I provided a peek into the history of the square timber logging days in the Ottawa Valley and Algonquin Park. In part two, Roderick Mackay joined me and provided some insight into what life was like for these loggers living all winter in a Cambu shanty. In this episode, I'm going to talk about how these loggers got all these logs out of the bush, including the life of a logging river driver, and on how the logging industry has evolved in the 20th century, and today including a coexistence with the recreational enjoyment of the park. As shared in episode 11, logging began with the identification of suitable trees in the bush. The trees were then cut down by tree fellers and linemen fashioned into square timbers by scorers and hewers. Once cut and shaped in the bush, the squared logs had to then be hauled to local waterways. In the early days, oxen were used because they could live on coarser food than horses, could withstand harsher treatment, were less excitable, and could go easily through swamps that would spook a horse. Wooden yokes were also cheaper than leather harness and didn't break as easily. Oxen also pulled more, though weren't as fast, they were much more difficult to manage. As noted by Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, by the 1860s oxen were replaced by horses. This was mostly because horses didn't need as much direction and could often drive themselves. The horses were big, 1,700 pounds or 770 kilograms, and they were usually Clydesdales, Percherons, or Belgians that were the norm. Men who owned their own skid horses were in demand and were the elite of the camp. They would lease themselves out to various lumber operations during the winter. These teamsters, as they were called, had to get up an hour before breakfast to feed and harness the horses, and the evening would have to spend time currying and watering them. In my new book, Governor Smith's Ontario Resort, Cal Taylor, whose grandfather, Wilmot Hamilton, was a logging teamster in the 1880s. As he shared, Grandpa told me many stories of his days driving a team. Up before daylight to take care of the horses, he'd then have a big breakfast and then would grab some bread and meat, usually salty pork, with which to build some sort of sandwich. He then would drive the team of horses out to where the boys were cutting in the skidways. Usually he'd bury his lunch in the snow so it wouldn't freeze. Next, a pile of logs would be loaded on his sleigh one by one, and then after being chained down, he'd haul them away down to the lake. As noted by Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, the process of hauling those logs to nearby rivers and lakes was pretty complicated and backbreaking work. The logs were first pulled to what were called skidways, which were really just flat landing or staging areas spread out about 200 feet or 60 meters apart along the logging roads that were cut through the bush. The average skidway was 25 feet or 7.6 meters wide and 70 feet or 21 meters long and contained about 350 logs. At the skidway, a scaler would count and measure all of the logs and then they'd be rolled up wooden skids into a pile. In later years, each log would be stamped with a brand unique to that specific logging company. All winter long, water would be spread along the logging roads so that the sleighs that hauled the piles of logs could more easily traverse the roads. By spring, these ice roads would sometimes be as much as 12 inches or 31 centimeters thick. 
Surveyors tried to lay out the logging roads as flat as possible, as it was extremely difficult for horses to haul the sleighs full of logs uphill. On downhill slopes, the team drivers had to be very careful, as on a steep hill, the sleigh could easily overtake the horses and the driver. To make sure that didn't happen, a man was stationed at each hill with a pile of straw or hay, which would be thrown over the icy surfaces in just the right amounts to slow the sleigh down but not cause it to stick. On steeper hills, warm sand would be used for this same purpose. Of course, in later years, different kinds of ropes and pulleys were used to apply pressure and increase the resistance. It would, though, be an understatement to say that accidents weren't infrequent, as they were, and often deadly to both horse and man. All the logging roads ended up at a lake where the logs were then piled out on prepared lake ice. Preparation involved a row of snowshoe-clad men stomping back and forth across a section of the lake to pack down the snow and enable a thick layer of ice to be formed. Sometimes the logs would be piled on steep riverbanks so that in spring they could easily be just rolled into the rivers. By mid-March, the cutting and hauling of logs had to stop as spring's thaw was about to begin though the towing of the logs across the lakes and the driving of them down rivers didn't usually begin until late April, once the ice had left the lakes. Cal Taylor, who I mentioned previously, shared in 1994 his experience as a child watching the loggers get logs to the lake. There was a very dangerous hill to go down to the lake. Usually chains were wrapped around the sleigh runners to slow down the sleigh on the downhill. It was usually sanded as well, the horses would be driven out onto the lake and logs unloaded and then back for another load until darkness halted the job. The area where the logs were dumped on the frozen lake was always kept rolled so the logs could be spread evenly. Around the outer perimeter of these logs ran other logs that were chained together, forming what they called a boom. In the spring of the year when the ice melted, this boom held the logs. Those workers who stayed on as river drivers were a different kind of cat. They had a different set of skills and usually a different attitude towards risk, as river driving was far more dangerous than cutting logs in the bush. River drivers were also known as river hogs or blackwater or whitewater men. Once the lakes were free of ice, the logs were herded downstream. Sometimes the natural currents would carry them. As noted by Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, at other times, large boom logs were specially cut and chained together that encircled a collection of logs that were towed by a catch crib. In essence, a catch crib was a special raft with a large spool or capstan in the center around which wound a thick rope. A large anchor or stone was towed down the lake and dropped, which was attached to the spool. Three men would walk round and round the capstan until the rope was wound up and the boom was hauled to the anchor. This process was repeated over and over to haul the log boom down the lake. On big lakes, horses were sometimes used to turn the capstan and could move the boom logs about a thousand feet or 300 meters an hour. In later years, a side paddle-wheeled steam-working tugboat called an alligator was used to essentially do the same thing. As Cal Taylor explained, an alligator had a winch on the front that was attached to a very long cable with an anchor. The alligator would move down the lake and at the end of the cable would drop an anchor. It would then use its paddle wheels, fed by a steam-powered boiler, to take it back to the log boom. Then the winch would be used to pull the alligator and the log boom back up to where the anchor was. 
This process would be repeated over and over until the log boom was maneuvered across the lake. Sometimes the anchor would be attached to a large tree, say on a point, and the alligator and log boom winched from there. I remember I did a couple of shifts with the alligator operator. My recollection is that it wasn't a lot of work to do, but there was plenty of good food. With an alligator, the anchor could be dropped as far as a mile away, so they were huge time and labor savers on big lakes. An alligator was also unique because it could pull itself overland or portage across log skids using its own winch that was attached to any large tree ahead. At the Algonquin Logging Museum, there's a reconstructed example of one, the William M. at Station 9. Bud Doring, who grew up in Brent on Algonquin Park Cedar Lake, worked the summer of 1946 on the William M. for the Gillies Lumber Company. His main duties were to hook up and unhook the tow ropes from the alligator to the log booms and row a pointer boat to shore to load the firewood for the steam engine. He was also the cook using a small gas stove where he would fry eggs for the captain and the crew. Another of his duties was to watch for sparks from the smokestack to make sure that the coils of rope on the deck didn't ignite. He had to have close at hand a pail of water to douse the occasional flare-up. He was also sent in the pointer boat to free up any logs that got caught on anything. He did claim, though, that the alligator moved very slowly, so slowly that he was sure he could swim faster than the tug could move itself in the water. The logs were floated from the company limits on the Nipissing River about 30 miles west of Cedar Lake. From there, they would warp the logs 11 miles down the lake to the entrance to the Petawawa River, which would take them eventually to the Ottawa River. As noted by Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, at the exits of each lake, dams were built to hold back the water, such that when a sufficient head of water was built up, the top stop logs would be removed, and the logs would be individually directed down the rivers connecting the various lakes. When a continuous flow of logs became impossible, the stop logs would be replaced at the dam, and the water held back again until a large enough reservoir was created, and then the whole process would be repeated again. Sometimes log chutes were built to move the logs over or around rapids or short distances, and even river bends were contoured and rocks were moved, or moved even using dynamite sometimes, to reduce the loss or damage to logs. The first logs down a river in the spring would grease, in other words, fill up all the little bays and backwaters and form side jams along the river, so that the logs coming behind would continue running down the natural main channel. At the end of the drive, men would come down to clean up the logs which had stuck. This operation was called a sweep or a sack or a picking the rear. Mackay went on to write that river drive camps were usually situated about five miles or eight kilometers apart, at or near a set of rapids or a dam or a timber chute. The river driving season usually lasted from ice out in mid to late April until mid to the end of June. River drivers wore special river driving lace-up boots that were cut shin high with double thick soles. The soles had nails or metal projections called corks that were inserted into the sole and heel of the boots. There were 30 on the sole and 15 on the heel. These allowed the boots to more easily grip slippery log surfaces, and they could anchor the river drivers to a floating log like the claws of a cat. To make them waterproof, the boots were rubbed with a mixture of four parts tallow and one part beeswax, melted together, and then mixed with three parts of warm castor or neat's foot oil. However, even with all that preparation, at the end of the day, river drivers were usually soaked. 
They seldom had dry clothes to change into and often had to sleep in wet garments. Only strong, young men could stand such work. According to Donald McKay in his book Lumberjacks, river drivers worked 15 hours a day to take advantage of every minute of daylight and ate four meals a day at 4 a.m., 9.30 a.m., 2.30 p.m., and 7.30 p.m. A river hog was the person who headed the logs and could run along a log which barely supported their weight and then leap to another when the first one started to sink. Whitewater men, on the other hand, were skilled at riding logs through rapids or breaking log jams. Blackwater men were the ones who rafted logs across lakes and tended booms. To deal with the black flies of late May and early June, the river drivers would often coat themselves with rubbed salt pork, a far cry from today's bug hats and deet. Normally, the river drivers would walk along the river monitoring the movement of the logs, but every once in a while there'd be a hang-up, which is what made the job of river driving so dangerous and the risk of injury or death so great. If the stuck log was dealt with quickly by prying it back into the stream with a pike pole or a cant hook, all was well. Pike poles used to prod the logs along were made of 12-foot or 3.7-meter long black spruce or ash, with either a blunt toe or gaff like a sharpened boat hook. Another important tool for a river driver was the peavey. Invented in 1858, the peavey was a five-foot or one-and-a-half-meter piece of ironwood with a spike on the end. It had another pointed thumb-like hook that moved up and down but not sideways. A peavey was used to bite into the side of a log and roll it or steady a rolling log. A cant hook was different from a peavey only in the sense that it had a blunt rather than a pointed end and was used mostly on skidways. Log jams required great courage to resolve, especially if it was a single log that was causing the problem. This was because when loosened, the entire collection of logs would start to move, and this would require quick reflexes by the river drivers to get out of the way. On big rivers, log jams could be a mile or two long with the logs piled up on top of each other like a wall. But there was usually one key log that held the entire drive back. Working down in the gap in front of a shaking wall of logs was a job only for volunteers. And when log jams broke and the logs started moving again, the sound was like a couple of freight trains rushing by. Sometimes the logs would rush by at up to 40 miles an hour. Again, let's take a moment to stop and think about the amount of courage it must have taken to volunteer to go in and pull a key log out of the way. There were apparently three kinds of major log jams. A center jam, which started in the middle of a river, a side jam, which built out from a log snagged on the shore, and a full jam that ran right across the entire river. Sometimes holding the water back at a dam and then letting it out would move the jam, and at other times it would squeeze it even tighter. Sometimes they'd get logs moving only to have them hang up again a short way down the river. Sometimes it would take four or five days to get 10,000 jammed cords out of the river. Jam busters would pry off logs one by one until they found the key log. The foreman would direct the efforts, watching the logs and listening carefully as the mound of logs shifted and groaned. Then, when there was a sudden shudder through the whole mass, the foreman would call for the jam busters to move and the jam would break and go. If a jam buster were fast, he would be out of the gap and off over the logs to shore like a scalded cat, his peavey held high across his chest for balance. 
If he moved too late, the best he might hope for was a rough ride to quiet water on one of the tumbling logs. Some were not so lucky in getting out of the way of the power of the logs, and many a shanty song recounted the death of a river driver mate. Here's one about Gary's rocks. Come all of you full shanty boys and listen while I relate Concerning a young river boss and his untimely fate Concerning a young river boss so handsome, true and brave It was on the jam at Gary's rocks where he met a watery grave it was on a Sunday morning, as you soon will hear. Our logs were piled up mountains high, we could not keep them clear. Our foreman said, turn out brave boys with hearts devoid of fear. We'll break the jam on Gary's rocks to Ellingstown we'll steer. Some of them were willing, while others they were not. To work on jams and Sundays they didn't think they ought. Till six of our Canadian boys all volunteered to go. To break the jam on Gary's rocks with the foreman young Monroe. They had not rolled off many logs till they heard his young voice say. I'll warn you boys, be on your guard, this jam will soon break way. Those words were scarcely spoken till the jam did break and go. And it carried off our Canadian boys and the foreman, young Monroe. When the rest of those young shanty men the sad news they did hear, in search of their brave comrades to the river's side did steer. Meanwhile their mangled bodies a-floating down did go, while dead and bleeding at the bank lay that of young Monroe. They took him from his watery grave, brushed back his raven hair. There was one fair girl among them whose sad cries filled the air. There was one fair girl among them who came from Saginaw town. Her moans and cries rose to the skies, her true love had been drowned. Fair Clara was a noble girl, the river man's true friend who with her widowed mother lived by the river's bend. The wages of our foreman the boss to her did pay. Those shanty boys made up for her a liberal purse that day. They buried him in sorrow's depths, it was on the first of May. On a green mound at the river bank there grew a hemlock gray. Inscribed on this gray hemlock by the river's side it grow was the name, the date of this sad fate of our foreman, young Monroe. Fair Clara did not long survive, her heart broke with its grief. Only six months after that death came to her relief. When at last her time had come then and she was called to go, 
Her last request was granted to be laid by young Monroe. In 1846, 130 men died on 20 rough tributaries of the Ottawa River. Those who died were usually buried beside the river with their boots hung on a nail or branch, with sometimes a crude wooden cross or a collection of logs used to mark the spot. I remember seeing the remains of such a spot on the Petawawa River whilst canoe tripping in the area in the late 1960s. In 1903, Ernest Machado made note in his diary and photographed a gravesite of the collection of logs type that they passed on the side of the Apiango River south of Annie Bay. There's a picture of it on my website and on the YouTube video for those interested in seeing what it looked like. Sometimes a jam didn't respond to Peavy and Pike, so the foreman would try a jam dog. Two strong hooks in the middle of a rope stretched across the stream were driven into the key log and pulled by men or horses on opposite banks of the river. River driver teams only used dynamite when there were no other options, as there was a risk that blasting the logs would splinter them. Men known as powder monkeys would bind sticks of explosive to a long pole with a fuse and shove it into a hole in the jam. They would then retreat with well-timed nonchalance to the shore. The dynamite was packed like soft brown sugar in a paraffin-coated cartridge. It was carried in wood boxes packed with sawdust. The fuse came in 50-foot or 15.2-meter coils that would burn for 30 seconds, and the charge was ignited with a copper cap containing fulminate of mercury. As recounted by Donald McKay in his book Lumberjacks, River driver foreman in those days had to run faster, jump higher, and spit further than any son of a bitch in the camp. Usually they had started work and lumbering as a young boy, had done practically every job, and had a style and energy that set the pace for the camp. The foreman's word was law, and the badge of office was the light axe he carried. Most had nicknames, and were the first up in the morning and the last to turn in at night. They also had to be inventive improvisers, as the local hardware store was a long way away. Here's another River Driver shanty song. Both this one and the previous one I shared with you were sung by Tom Brandon and recorded by Edith Folk and found on an album called Lumber Songs from the Ontario Shanties. It features ballads sung by former loggers and woodsmen from Ontario, and I found it on a website called internetarchive.org. Come all you young boys from the river, come and listen to me for a while. I will tell you all a sad story of my friend and kind chum Johnny Stiles. We were camped on the Big Moose River, way down by the old Jumbo Dam. One morning while eating our breakfast, on the rocks we espied a great jam. As soon as we'd eaten our breakfast, we were out on the head of that jam. There two of the boys took the pole trail to break out the reservoir dam. We worked for an hour and a quarter. Our pikes and our peavies did pry, never dreaming that one of our number this day would so horribly die. On the river there was never known better than my friend and kind chum Johnny Stiles. He had rode the logs oftener than any. 
He had always been reckless and wild. We worked for an hour and a quarter. The sweat down our bodies did pour. Till the water got worked down in under. Like lightning she pulled out of there. Ride her down, boys, ride her down to dead water. So gladly our foreman did shout. Not a man in the gang who won't ride her. Not a man in the gang who'll back out. Bad luck was with Johnny that morning. His foot, it got caught in the jam. And you know how those waters go howling from the flood of the reservoir dam. But I was not far from poor Johnny when I first heard his wild shout. But you know how those waters go rolling. They roll in and they never roll out. We rode it down to dead water. A sweat down our bodies did pour. Till we pulled his dead body from in under. And it looked like poor Johnny no more. He was crushed from his head to his shoulders. His body in tatters and strings. So we buried him there by the river. Where the lark and the nightingale sings. He was crushed from his head to his shoulders. In pieces the size of your hand. On earth we look after his body. May the Lord take his soul in command. Once these individual sticks made it through the various tributaries to the banks of the Ottawa River, then the real fun would begin. They would be assembled into rafts for the trip down the Ottawa River. The basic unit of a raft was the crib that included 20 sticks of square timber, approximately 26 feet or 7.9 meters wide, by 50 feet long, or 15 meters. The sticks were locked between two big logs which served as floats. A crib weighed 40 tons and was fitted with oar locks for 20 foot or 6.1 meter sweeps. Cribs were coupled together with cap pieces which were short planks which fitted over wooden pegs. And when rough water or rapids were encountered on the rivers, each crib was uncoupled like a railway car and driven separately down the difficult part of the river. To get around Chaudière Falls, one of the biggest obstacles on the river, the large cribs would again be disassembled and each individual crib was floated down a timber slide. This slide had been built by Ruggles Wright, who was Philemon's son, in 1829. It was a shallow canal, about three quarters of a mile long, that moved the 25-foot or 7.8-meter cribs down a series of inclined planes to the pool of water below. At the top of this chute, a pilot and a steersman would ride and steer each crib down the long, watery slope. There's a marvelous picture on my website, algonquinparkheritage.com, of this slide at Chaudière Falls. After Chaudière Falls, the cribs would then be reassembled for the ongoing journey to Quebec City, where they'd be loaded onto sailing ships and sent to England. Ottawa River rafts often contained 80 to 100 cribs, and were manned by a crew of 22 men who slept in crude shanties on the rafts. As mentioned previously, a fabulous story of the last Ottawa River crib drive, which is another must-read, is Ron Corbett's 2008 One Last River Run. 
It recounts his adventures organizing and documenting the building and reenactment of the last commercial square timber raft to float down the Ottawa River in 1908. In June 2008, on the 100th year anniversary, he and a handful of others traversed from Schatz Lake to the Museum of Civilization in the heart of Ottawa on a 30-ton raft. Arriving on Canada Day, the trip was an incredibly popular success, and the line to view the craft both along its way and at its resting berth was unbelievable. According to Roderick Mackay in his book Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, the last timber limit sold to the Gilmore Brothers firm Gilmore & Company took place in 1892, and it was for the land around Canoe and Burnt Island Lakes. The loggers began cutting pine in 1893 with the intent to float all of it to Trenton. Gary Long's book, When Giants Fall, is a great read for anyone interested in this misadventure. They built a large depot at the end of Tea Lake where it enters the Oxtong River, about where the picnic area is today. A few years later, after that terrible debacle, they decided to build a sawmill on the north end of Canoe Lake at Mowat. The mill began operations in April 1897, just after the Ottawa Arn Prior and Perry Sound Railway began commercial and passenger operations. Over the years, other sawmills by other firms were built at Rainy, Brule, Brent, Cochon, and Kiosk Lakes, to name a few. In 1899, when lumbermen lobbyists successfully convinced the Ontario government to allow the cutting of hardwood in addition to pine, business looked promising. These species included spruce, hemlock, black and yellow birch, black ash, and tamarack. The dams built at the south end of Tea, Joe, and Smoke Lakes did a good job of making it easier to get the logs to the mill, but did kill all of the trees along the shoreline. In other locales, such as the Otter Slides and along the Petawawa, the dams used in seasonal river driving caused flooding for miles along creeks and stream beds, even drowning beavers in their lodges. The slash that was left was unsightly, especially when cutting took place along the shorelines. Spawning beds for trout were also affected due to both soil erosion and the impact of the logs themselves going down the rivers during the river drives. People started to notice. The then Governor General Minto noticed in 1900, commenting on the ruined scenery that the heartless methods of the lumbermen have produced. George Bartlett, the then park superintendent, noticed on a winter trip across the park in 1911 and lamented the forest filled with stumps and slash right to the shoreline. As Rory Mackay noted in Algonquin, a place like no other, he feared that in a few years, less than most imagine, we shall find we have a vast burned country, worth nothing to us and nothing to our children. How was it that the shorelines of the lakes and the park could not be protected, he mused. Joseph Adams, who I mentioned in a previous podcast and whose book, 10,000 Miles Through Canada, likely encouraged many to visit the country, also mused about the destructive effects of logging. He was concerned about the dams that were constructed by commercial loggers and suggested in 1912 that the government buy out the lumber companies. Not much happened until the Munn Lumber Company started cutting hemlock bark at Cache Lake, right near the newly opened Highland Inn. Hemlock bark was stripped from the trees and used in tanning operations, but rarely were the trees cut down. They were just left there to become growing eyesores. Visitors sitting on the veranda of the Highland Inn watched in anger as nearby birch trees were cut down. To solve the immediate complaints being raised by Cache Lake recreationists, 
The Ontario government bought out the timber limit for the Mon Lumber Company in that area and shut down the bark stripping operations. This mollified recreationists but didn't address the underlying problem, which was that the economic backbone of that part of eastern Ontario was logging. With the existing mining, wildlife preservation and settlement restrictions inside the vast area of the park, it meant a significantly less diverse economy in the communities surrounding the park than elsewhere in the Ontario North. Most, if not all, able-bodied men in those communities worked for the lumber companies as fire patrol, workers in the lumber camps, and at the sawmills. The stumpage fees collected for each board foot harvested were an important source of income for the Ontario government as well at that time. Pressure to stop all logging in the park remained, but was ultimately unsuccessful. In the 1930s, there was another sustained public outcry about the visible destruction that logging was causing. In response, the then park superintendent changed the park regulations so that 100 feet or 30.1 meters of shoreline around Cache Lake was reserved to protect lake scenic beauty. This policy was eventually extended to include all of the lakes in the park. Nevertheless, below the surface, complaints continued. Even Frank McDougall, the park superintendent from 1931 to 1941, and later the deputy minister for lands and forests, muttered about the problems created by sawmills, including the lost beauty of the site, the debris that became eyesores, and what to do with the people in the mess when those same sawmills failed. As some of you may recall, my YouTube video of what life was like on Canoe Lake during the 1918 pandemic year and several of my books have pictures of the Canoe Lake Mill and Chipyard, which was an eyesore for decades. Of course, written into the Lumber Company License of Occupation were commitments to clean up the mess after they left, but few commercial logging firms ever did this. This left the Ontario government with all the problems, which is what I suspect McDougall was really intimating. Given that hardwood once cut quickly decayed in the heat and didn't float very well, the only way to easily remove it from the park was on trucks. To facilitate this movement of logging trucks, in 1945 the Department of Lands and Forests, who managed all of Ontario parks, made plans to construct, mostly in the park, almost 400 kilometers of main gravel roads and 250 kilometers of secondary gravel roads. In operation by 1948, not only did this facilitate the movement of logs, but it also turned lumber operations into a 12-month-a-year endeavor. Lumber camps were no longer needed as workers could commute from homes in Barry's Bay, Whitney, and Madawaska, or could live in more centralized trailer camps. The number of sawmills exploded with ones appearing on Potter Creek at the north end of Canoe Lake, on White Partridge Lake, West Smith Lake, Lake Traverse, east of Annie Bay on the south end of Apiango, and Hogan Lake, as well as continued operations on Kiosk and Lake of Two Rivers. Of course, many, if not most, of these operations were not sustainable, and the regenerating forest has overtaken their remains today. Just less than 100 feet, or 30.5 meters, from the shore of Potter Creek, for example, can be found the two-story remains of the Omanique Lumber Company that operated there in the 1940s parts of the wooden trestle bridge that crossed the creek to take finished lumber out to Highway 60 is also still standing. Another piece of logging trivia is the esteem that yellow birch once had. 
Yellow birch formed the wings of most types of aircraft due to its elastic lightness and bullet-resisting qualities. During World War II, it was in high demand for the building of over 8,000 de Havilland mosquito bombers. McRae Lumber Company on Lake of Two Rivers was then one of the largest producers and shippers of the needed hardwood veneer logs used in the war effort. For a long time, because of the shoreline protection, these activities of logging in the park were hardly noticed. Few citizens were actually aware of and, in fact, were surprised to find out how much logging was actually happening in the park. Canoe trippers would occasionally come across a lumber road or a lumber truck. In 1963, the biggest complaint by interior canoeists and anglers was the amount of garbage on campsites and along the canoe trails and the limited number of access points into the park interior. It wasn't until views from airplanes lay bare how much of Algonquin Park was now logging roads. But the dramatic increase in the number of visitors during the 1960s changed everything. A 1965 internal planning report indicated that the number of park visitors had increased from 150,000 a year in 1958 to close to half a million in 1965. 77,000 campers used the campgrounds along Highway 60, and the number of interior canoe trippers tripled from 10,000 to 32,000. With this increased visitorship came more logging recreationist interactions. Canoe trippers would think they were in the wilderness and would stumble upon a logging road and were advised to keep an ear out for approaching logging trucks. Sometimes the noise of saws and other logging equipment could be heard in the distance. Suddenly, even though logging had been going on in the area for over a hundred years, and Algonquin Park was then classified as a natural environment, not a primitive park, many were up in arms and demanded a voice in how Algonquin Park was to be managed. Public activism only grew. The Algonquin Wildlands League was founded in June 1968. They wanted logging operations and road construction to be curtailed, especially the use of mechanized equipment during the summer months, and that a large part of the park be set aside as a primitive area where canoe trippers could experience true wilderness. Public awareness and activism about water, air, and noise pollution was also just beginning, as was the power of the media to drive public awareness of issues and ultimately to shape public policy. The park policy idea was multiple use, with the idea that recreational and commercial logging interests could coexist. One catch, though, was the challenges that park officials had in monitoring what the logging companies were actually doing. As the then-park superintendent Bill Houston noted, the quality of control on logging operations has not been of the standard expected in a provincial park. Some progress had been made in moving away from the original diameter limit system, anything over a certain diameter could be cut, to what was called shelterwood cutting, i.e. a 20-year cutting intervals where forest stands were thinned to ensure the right light density for optimum growth and disease protection. But emerging in the late 60s, early 70s, was the idea of selective cutting. Using this method, only certain trees that were diseased, not growing optimally, or of a certain size were cut, leaving most of the rest of the forest intact. The people pressure continued, and concerns were raised that this pressure was threatening the destruction of the very environment that was the attraction of the park in the first place. A water testing effort organized by the Algonquin Park Residents Association showed that serious water pollution existed in lakes along the Highway 60 corridor. This was especially true in the waters around the car campgrounds, the children's camps, and other public facilities, with Lake of Two Rivers being the worst. 
In response, in November 1968, a small 35-page provisional master plan for Algonquin Park was released, and during the follow-on public hearings, it became clear how few citizens were aware that there was extensive logging in Algonquin Park. Their response was not positive, and the late 1960s equivalent of a Twitter storm ensued. Though carried out mostly in newspapers, magazines, editorial pages, and letters to the editor, Algonquin Park became ground zero for a very public confrontation between the logging industry and the recreationists, with park officials stuck in the middle. To diffuse the situation, an internal task forces were created and multiple impact studies designed and executed across a broad range of topics. Then an Algonquin Park Advisory Committee, headed by a former Ontario Premier, Leslie Frost, was established to provide and advise the government on the matter of park policy. It included representatives from nearly a dozen major stakeholders, including six local members of the Ontario Legislature and the Mayor of Huntsville. A few new restrictions on the logging industry put in place, including the creation of a sound buffer, such that there would be no operations during the summer within two miles of lakes and rivers, and specified hours for log hauling on weekdays and none on the weekends from the end of June to Labor Day. Though sheltered from each other, the fundamental problem wasn't addressed. Commercial logging is an important economic engine for local communities, modern forest management, and the needs of recreationists were equally important park goals, as stated in the original 1893 charter. After five years of study and public consultation in July 1973, the Minister of Natural Resources, Leo Bernier, announced a set of policy decisions firmly positioning Algonquin as an average man's wilderness. This evolved into a master plan which was announced in the fall of 1974. Its regional goal was to maintain the economic base for local communities while continuing to provide Ontario residents with a diversity of low-intensity recreational opportunities. The park was divided up into zones, each with a different purpose, from primitive and recreational zones that were to be free of logging, to natural zones to protect specific habitats, to historic zones to recreation utilization zones where both would be permitted with specific restrictions. The provision of forest products would continue but would be operated in a much more closely managed way, using the new zoning mechanisms as a way to keep logging and other conflicting interests apart. Private timber limits were eliminated. A Crown agency, the Algonquin Forest Authority, was created with a mission of ensuring that the long-term health of Algonquin's forests, while producing a sustainable supply of forest products for the forest industry of the region, and in so doing, maintain the park values for future generations. The AFA would provide wood products to local sawmills that would all be located just outside the park boundaries and sound restrictions were put in place from late June to early September. More forest regenerative work would be undertaken and formal programs initiated to educate the public of the benefits of forest management. To reduce the pressure on the interior, in 1976, a quota system for canoeists was instituted, limiting the number of canoeists that could depart from an access point on any given day and the number of campsites on specific lakes. Campsites located at portage entrances and on small islands were closed down. In 1978, a total can and bottle ban was initiated, and over time additional access points were created. Today it is possible to access the interior through 34 designated access points. 
This was where things stood until 1998, when the Algonquin Park Master Plan was replaced with the Algonquin Park Management Plan. This 20-year plan's overall goal was to provide protection of natural and cultural features while providing opportunities for low-intensity recreational wilderness and environmental experiences. More nature reserve and development zones were added and a new natural environment zone was created that could act as a buffer around development zones. In these zones, low-impact backcountry use was allowed, but not high-intensity development in the extraction of natural resources. The northern rail line across the northeast side of the park was rerouted along the Ottawa River and the rails taken up. In 2007, attempts were made to lighten the ecological footprint of logging in the park even more, and though it took six years of consultation and collaboration in 2013, a joint proposal for lightening the ecological imprint of logging in Algonquin Park was published. Areas that were more difficult to harvest because of their proximity to canoe routes along waterways in boggy or other wet areas were removed from harvesting. With these efforts, logging was reduced to approximately 51.2% of the park, and only a small portion of trees would be harvested in any one year. More practices were put in place so that mature timber was removed in such a way that injury to the existing forest was minimal. The forest character of the area preserved and the natural reproductive processes maintained as much as possible. In 2016, there were over 300 people employed in Algonquin Woods-related activities and another 3,000 employed at the nearby sawmills. The sales volume of Algonquin Forest Authority forest products reached $20 million, with an overall economic value added estimated to be $356 million. Today, their approved forest management plan is updated every 10 years and is prepared by professional foresters intent on maintaining a healthy, sustainable forest. Most people aren't aware, likely, that the Algonquin Forest Authority is considered a leader in forest management and has received many awards over the years and is totally committed to ensuring that the values that make Algonquin Park great are maintained. Each of the key stakeholders, whether it's the logging operations, the indigenous groups, or all of the recreationists, we each have different perspectives and interests and it's important for us not to forget the park's original objectives as set forth in 1893 by Kirkwood so long ago. Though modified and updated somewhat in today's management plan, the overarching goal is, in the end, to provide protection of natural and cultural features, continuing opportunities for a diversity of low-intensity recreational wilderness and natural environment experiences, and within this provision, continue and enhance the park's contribution to the economic, social, and cultural life of the region. Today, Algonquin Park has five specific objectives. They are, number one, to protect provincially significant elements of the natural and cultural landscape of Algonquin Park. Two, to provide outdoor recreation opportunities ranging from high-intensity day use to low-intensity wilderness experiences. Three, to provide opportunities for exploration and appreciation of the outdoor natural and cultural heritage of Algonquin Park. Number four, to provide Ontario residents and out-of-province visitors with opportunities to discover and experience the distinctive regions of Algonquin Park. And lastly, to practice sustainable resource management in Algonquin Park for the long-term health of the park's ecosystems and to provide recreational, cultural, and economic benefits. But the park also needs our protection. 
and there's a set of values associated with park use that we need to occasionally remind ourselves of and proactively educate those new to its charms. I hope you've enjoyed this walk through the history of logging in the Ottawa Valley in the park, which is such an important part of Ontario's history. As mentioned in previous episodes, I've posted a collection of photographs on my website, algonquinparkheritage.com. There are also all kinds of videos on YouTube. Just put Algonquin Park Logging Museum is your search term. Again, I'd like to give a very special shout out to Roderick Mackay for all of his work on this topic. Roderick's and other books on the topic are, of course, all available on the Friends of Algonquin Park online and in-person bookstores.